This is Illegal Screen. You already know what it is. I'm Brian Ressler. I'm Liam Green, I think. We got, yeah, we're pretty sure of your identity, but we're we're not 100%. Uh, this is Real Lodge Hours, Real Damn Good Coffee. We're back, and today we are going to be discussing a film. A film that perhaps is more relevant now than ever before. Uh, for those reasons, you shall soon come to understand, or, or not, it, it depends. Uh, we're also going to be talking about extra-dimensional concepts, a usual topic for the show, that's right. Uh, concepts within the shared universe of Twin Peaks, Firewalk With Me. Uh, but before we delve in, uh, we do have an incredible guest with us today. Adam Washington is the first full-length published author on The Flenser, a lord of grief, avid hater of the law of attraction, leader of the most cursed secret society which shall not be named, lest we all endure the cacophony of a foul god mocking us for all eternity, noted Sims caretaker, and all-around great guy, Adam, welcome to the screen. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You're, we're glad to have you, yeah. Yes, it's a pleasure. Um, so let's just go ahead and get right in this. We'll dive right into Fire Walk with me. Liam, go ahead and take us away uh, with kind of the plot of the film and then a little bit of the history of it, too. Right. So, after Twin Peaks as a series closed, um, Lynch, in collaboration with one of uh, collaboration with one of the main Twin Peaks writers, Robert Engels, decided to make a film that explores not only the events leading up immediately up to Laura Palmer's murder and the murder itself, but also jumping back in time to the previous murder that is lit, that uh, Laura's death is a part of, like is a link in that chain. And along the way, it takes a lot of bizarre detours at various times. It is as much a prequel as it is a sequel or like sideways movie it's very like depending on how you read it or how you watch it like if you watch it and then you watch the uh the missing pieces which come on most uh on the criterion version of the film and are also available on the criterion channel uh where the film is um you can view it in a lot of ways and some people who are lucky enough to view the legendary fan made uh super cut of all of that that go that's like three three hours and 40 minutes were lucky enough to really get a unique experience uh to see see that film from all possible angles in any event um it begins with an FBI agent similar to Cooper exploring the murder of Teresa Banks in a town not that far from Twin Peaks, uh, in the same general area of Washington, like rural, just the same. But there's something much more defeated and ugly about this place. Uh, Deer Meadow, I think it is. Then, like, it's much more just grotesque and vulgar than the town of Twin Peaks was in the series we'd just been accustomed to watching. And so that really sets the tone for how the rest of the movie is going to be, and we'll get to that much later. Like, the 
investigation into Banks' death hits a dead end for reasons that... Uh, should I spoil it? What, yeah, I think I we can. I mean, yeah, yeah I, would, we I, might would, as well. I would spoil it. It's... Well, yeah, so fair warning for those of you who haven't seen Bar Walking With Me and want to. Uh, while I'm strictly discussing plot, you may want to uh, uh, pause and skip ahead like uh, five, ten minutes. If you're okay with being spoiled, uh, carry on because I've like some things have been ruined for me that I or have been spoiled for me that weren't ultimately ruined. I said spoiling, so it's all up to you. Yep. Anyhow, the investigation of Teresa Banks comes to a dead end when the agent investigating, a guy named Chet Desmond, uh, a great name, played by <laughs> Chris Isaac, in and of itself a great name, also a great occasional actor um, and incredible like neo-rockabilly singer, uh, suddenly disappears on fi- upon finding a ring that will be crucial to not only the rest of Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me, but also to Twin Peaks The Return yep. much later. Yep. So from there, we segue into... Well, we, we that's our first sighting of The Lodge, is as an interstitial, almost, in between these two stories. Um, when an eight, another FBI agent... Philip Jeffries, believed to be long missing, finally appears, screams some warnings to the FBI field office, to Cooper and to Director Gordon Cole. Oh, hell, goddamn, baby, no. <laughs> hell, god baby, damn, no, I found something. David Bowie, by the way, playing uh, Agent Jeffries in an incredible, yeah. incredible <laughs> minor performance, but still really awesome. Yeah. Um,. And just as suddenly disappears, and from there, while that's going on, we see some visuals of the lodge that are much more than we've ever seen of it in Twin Peaks the series, and we see many more of its denizens. In the uh, Missing Pieces version of that scene, you see even more of them, and a lot, like, the filming of it is a lot more bizarre, and... Then we segue from that back into more familiar surroundings with just Laura Palmer walking walking to school and we think we're back in a world of comfort until we find out that we're not, as we as we did in the series, but here the just the absolute flying underneath the veneer of Twin Peaks, as opposed to Deer Me- the town of Deer Meadow, where there was little veneer over how unpleasant the place really was. Twin Peaks does have that slight air of respectability and jazz folks type charm. Uh, but through the eyes of Laura in the days leading up to her, her murder, we see all of the ugliness firsthand rather than learning about it from witness accounts as we had to on the show due to the subject matter that was being expressed that was being talked about like third hand in or second hand in the original series you're seeing it up close like all of the drugs uh 
the sexuality, the violence, uh, especially the violence, and the greatest crime of all, which is uh, Laura Palmer's rape at the hands of her father. Mm-hmm. And that that is what makes the film a truly dark sit. And I imagine this, I imagine that is a large part of why the film failed so much. There's, there are several reasons for this. Like Lynch wanted to explore this world again from a unique angle and from a very human angle as dark, like there is no joy in the suffering he's expressing of this character. No, his expression of the suffering of this character, but he feels he felt it necessary to express it. And, and in the structure of the film is also jarring the first time you've seen it. And if you are seeing it for the first time and you're anything other than a Twin Peaks super fan, it may not work. Yeah, I can't imagine but, going into this film if you had never even, first of all, seen Twin Peaks, or second of all, even if you had seen Twin Peaks a couple well, of years that's ago. One of the, that's one of the interesting things that I'll get to, is that... So, the film screens at con, it gets about uh, a half-and-half half ratio of boos and uh, claps. Like, there are some loud booers, some equally loud clappers. It doesn't win the prize, of course. It was he was not really expecting to, even though he had just won the Palm d'Or with Wild at Heart uh, the previous uh, two years previous. Right, and so it's great. I believe may have screened at some other festivals before after that, with uh, varying uh, results. When it came finally to American theaters, it was a complete and total bomb. It was savaged by most American critics, um, including people like Roger Ebert, who Roger Ebert had a long aversion to Lynch for a while and didn't really become, didn't really get into him until Mulholland Drive. Yeah. Um, and other high profile critics also had similar dismissals of it. It was liked enough by fans, but not not entirely. I mean, people liked it because they were getting to see some of the Twin Peaks characters again, but they weren't ready to see them this way, I don't think. And there are also weird little things, like uh, they had to change the casting for Donna Hayward, who's played by Moira Kelly in... Uh, in Firewalk with Me, and she's right. a little, just a slight downgrade, quality-wise of acting from from she Laura Flynn Boyle. Yeah, the movie. The first time I saw her, like I was watching it, and I had no idea Donna had been replaced. And when I saw her, I was like shocked, and <laughs> it took me out. Oh yeah, I was prepared for it, so it didn't bother me as much. And I do think Kelly does okay, but you're. I can see how it probably did weird people out as you're describing and just like, and it was just weird. Like the whole thing, people just couldn't really make heads or tails of it generally. And it wouldn't really, it wouldn't develop much of a reputation until 
really many years later, like until people were really starting to reappraise Twin Peaks as a whole, um, which is in the mid 2000s to mid aughts period you got a lot of like you got the gold box re-release of the series right um and then you lynch constructed the missing pieces and put those out as part of a another box set which is like all the gold box stuff plus firewalk with me um plus some extra extras um and so yeah, when it came out, it was not really a box office success anywhere except Japan, oddly, and like wasn't even particularly su- successful in Europe. But as it became reappraised, as fans and critics became more understanding of what the whole of Twin Peaks is attempting to express, yeah, more people came to like, love, or even at least simply appreciate firewalk with me and that was it was good that, that happened because it it serves as sort of an entree not an entree um like a conduit through which you can more easily jump into twin peaks the return which is even more a retreat from what the original twin peaks was in most ways yeah, this this film really presents kind of a an odd when you consider the watching order of Twin Peaks. It's it presents itself as a really odd entry because, like you said, it is this connective tissue between Twin Peaks the series and then the return. And at the same time, it's also oddly a prequel. It functions on a, you know multiple yeah. levels. So if you want to watch it chronologically, you like the story of Laura as it were chronologically. You might as you would be best served by watching that before the series. But I don't think anyone would want to do that because it would, it would ruin the mystery of the original run. That's a good point. That's a really good point. So, so I wouldn't expect anyone to do that. Although I'm so fucking weird. and I'm such a lynch obsessive that I'm, it might be an experiment. I try on my own at some point, but like, like, if you Next do a rewatch, yeah. <laughs> if you do a real chronological rewatch of the show, you got to start with uh, the 1945 part of Part Eight. Oh God! Then jump, <laughs> then jump to fucking Firewalk with Me. Mm. Then jump to the series. <laughs> then jump back to Firewalk with Me for the few scenes that are in it that are both <laughs> in the present and past yeah i bet you anything there's like a true super fan ultra cut of somebody assembling it in pure chronological order it must twin peaks itself yeah uh, yeah. twin peaks the return itself and then you'll be a then you don't have to switch anything else for the rest so listeners as you can tell it's super easy to listen to follow the series in chronological (laughs) order just do exactly what we said and you're gonna be fine it's it's not hard to figure it out this is an, such an interesting film, and it, I think that is you know, commenting on the reappraisal of it and how it, this film's been reapproached by both mainstream audiences and critics alike is is really invigorating because it does show hope for a lot of projects in the past that 
um, were really, really maligned and, and, and utterly loathed or just disliked when they came out. And then all of a sudden, people realized that it might have been a mindset issue. It might have been also kind of part of the the cultural hegemony of the time of what was valued and what was considered excellent and what was considered not so good. It's interesting to see critics walk back ideas uh, and actually admit, you know, maybe I, I really wasn't in the right mindset for this. Like I've definitely done that with certain movies. Yeah. Like there are movies that I once hated and now pretty much love. Right. Yeah, exactly. There are plenty of them. Like, I remember like not liking the Paul Verhoeven stuff, to be honest, as a kid, like, and like, as a teenager, you're probably supposed to be liking it for all the shoot 'em up reasons. But like, I just couldn't get into it. And then and now as an adult, when everything's so much more relevant, like watching Robocop and Total Recall and Starship Troopers is just like entering another, it's just being like, oh, Jesus Christ, he was so far ahead of his time. He was like watching a documentary, really. Kind of. <laughs> and where's the lie? And Fire Walk With Me is amazingly ahead of its time. Like, in terms yeah. of its structural gambit, it's extremely bold. It's as bold as anything done, as any, as anything like temporal experiments done in something like The Usual Suspects or Tarantino's films or later... I guess Christopher Nolan. It's in in its own way. It's as bold as any of that, but just at, for entirely different reasons. Um, but anyway, I feel like I've talked for eight years. Yeah, no, so, that's good. So we have a comprehensive <laughs> overview in, in kind of history of the film, and that's good. Um, so, but speaking on those tonal differences, something we mentioned early. That's kind of where we want to hone in here because this is a like we said, it's a bleak, kind of pessimistic film um, until basically the 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 ending of it uh which uh you know we'll talk about that in a little bit but um so adam you know why were you drawn to uh this world this portrayal of twin peaks why does it resonate with you and and how does it affect any of your writing um well i think it sort of has to do with what you just said about it being pessimistic and dark and bleak and just like there is this real sense in the movie which is there in the original Twin Peaks, but in Fire Walk With Me, it's a lot darker. Where in the original Twin Peaks, there's a big deal about, like, the juxtaposition between how the actual town of Twin Peaks seems idyllic and peaceful, but on the underbelly of all of it, it's constant, like, cheating, drugs, murder, arson... All of this terrible shit that um, Cooper coming there and Laura's death sort of unravels that and shows the audience just how how the entire town was walking on eggshells almost. And it just took one event to set it off. Right. And in Fire Walk With Me, that's even more exaggerated because you actually see the events that led up to that. But not only that, the... The Lodge Spirits and the mystery of the Lodge Spirits, because I still don't know what, like, objectively happens in the movie. Like, between the spirits, I have a loose idea of, like, Mike's motivations, of the man from another place's motivations. But the fact that there is this second, or rather third, underbelly to Twin Peaks, 
where you have all of this terrible shit that's like happening to Laura and everything. But even under that, there's this horrifying, surreal lodge or red room where these spirits congregate and interact with the world in such a way where they want pain and sorrow. Garmonbosia, I think is how you say it. So, Garmonbosia. So. <laughs> Dude, that gets stuck in my head. I don't even know why, but the arm saying that gets stuck in my head. It's a but, great, great fucking Yeah. Um, but, yeah, just like this idea that underneath the surface is something unthinkably dark and scary is something that I do like to work into my writing, too, with, like, the Misophorism trilogy. Um, basically, the context of the book is this is all history that's been wiped from history because people right. are, like, scared to learn about it because of how bleak it is. So this idea of having this underbelly of darkness and suffering is definitely something that resonates with me quite a bit. Yeah. As a I'm... brief aside, I want to note that I just finished reading the Misophorism trilogy at like one thirty in the morning last <laughs> night. <laughs> I hope your dreams yeah. weren't fucked up. No, uh, that's what Trazodone's for. Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You sure. sleep peacefully every night, guaranteed. <laughs> it's true. Or, I... um, and also, it, it didn't do that because of, well, also, it, frankly, because, Adam, of your, your, your authorial message at the very end of the book, when you break, finally break the wall, and you're like, regardless of everything we've been talked about here, giving a simple but necessary and emotional suicide warning and instruction and like saying that if no one else loves you i love you that really resonated after reading all of all uh 160 odd pages of just Definitely. unremitting brutality and especially in the third part which i think is my favorite um not on like all of these horrific murders as well. Like it becomes much more of a straightforward, like almost a mock, like not a modern horror narrative, but like it is much more just like outright terror as opposed to, I think the first two books are more overwhelming dread. Yeah. Which I also love, but anyway, sorry, that was my just big interjection. I just want to shout no. out because I know, I know our interview stuff is going to more be on. No. Uh, to sing of damnation, but I really yeah. want to uh, well, thanks. say I really appreciate how much, yeah, just say how much I really, really loved the book. Yeah, that's uh, that's awesome, and and yeah, we uh, we did our homework uh, <laughs> as we did, and uh, yeah, I think that is a great point you brought up, Adam, to double back on on kind of why this does influence some of your work and talking about these hidden cosmologies, because it was something that um, obviously Lynch would revisit in The Return, where there is this unbeknownst to i would say majority of the denizens or citizens of twin peaks there is a beyond just the the red room beyond the black lodge there's a cosmology that has been at work forever yeah. effectively or at least since 1945 um and so there's something that exists beyond the idea of of a god or the other realm or another world 
uh, and it just goes deeper than what you'd think. And I think probably only bit of kind of, I would, I don't want to say comfort because I don't think that's necessarily right. But I think the degree of comfort that Lynch brings with this is, is standing in the sort of like opposition to this idea is Laura Palmer and sacrifice and what suffering means, uh, which is sort of more of a traditional theological angle where, well, if you suffer, uh, and you die, it's, it's effectively for a good cause. Um, as long as you're connected to this idea of inherent goodness, um, that has to happen. Goodness must die, uh, so that evil in its form can be unveiled or defeated or X, Y, and Z, you know, these tropes that have existed in, in theological examinations for a very long time now. Um, and I think that that's kind of what I see as a connect, as, as, as a, as a little bit of connection between the two. I think it's neat. It's interesting how. Twin Peaks has, uh, well, Fire Walk With Me has had that influence uh, on your yeah. writing. Um, I don't have a tremendous lot to actually say about the tone of this film, um, nor of uh, kind of the the concepts of Fire Walk With Me. What, I, what I'd like to say about my, my piece about it is I think that it's something that um, even if you aren't a Twin Peaks fan, and I'm going to be very brave here. Uh, even if you're not a Twin Peaks fan or you not, you have not seen Twin Peaks, I think you should actually watch this movie. Um, because Adam brought up a good point that even when you are able to work out the kind of logic and progression of this film, it still has so many mysteries that it seems impenetrable. And it's almost like it's speaking a different language. And I feel that if you are a, if you are a avid, uh, film watcher, or even if you're not, and you just want to see the weirdness unfold, you're going to get something from this film. Uh, it, it's, it's almost like an impressionistic painting. You're going to take away something from it. And I think that it's absolutely a film that everyone should watch, uh, even if you're even moderately curious in surrealism or moderately curious in Lynch's uh, filmography. It's absolutely worth your time. That's that's my perspective on it. And I challenge you, if you've never seen it, to watch it. And if you've never seen Twin Peaks, watch it anyways. And just just vibe with it. Vibe with it. Yeah, I mean, I think I agree too. It's definitely a film that, like you said, speaks a different language almost. It's it's very much like a dream, like everything else Lynch does. And, you know, he's definitely aware of that with when Philip Jeffrey says we live inside a dream. So it's and that line in itself is a mystery. Like, what does that mean? And that's right. returned to in the return, but it's never fully explained. Yeah. Yeah. It's more like we live inside a dream and the Monica blue. Well, not Monica Bellucci character, literally Monica Bellucci adds, but who is the dreamer? Yeah. That's yeah. really all that's yeah. expanded on, and that question is not necessarily answered. No, it's not, and that's what makes this such a Twin Peaks as a whole such a, an incredible phenomenon. Uh, but it's also the those incidents where you think there might be finally closure is that even when you have an answer, there's just more questions, um, which is which is really interesting. Um, so we talk a lot of. Uh, about a lot of things on this pod, uh, mostly within the parameters of what we're trying to focus on, uh, but seldom have we ever discussed uh, locations uh, or a location within work. However, uh, it's inarguable that Twin Peaks would be nowhere near as iconic or as memorable without the presence of the Black Lodge slash Red Room. So, 
put on your extra-dimensional architectural detective hats, brew a cup of coffee, uh, we're deep-diving through a free-roaming exploration of time, space, and everything in between. Mike, as of this time, hit us with that Angelo Badalamenti theme. Uh, so let's go ahead and just talk about the Black Lodge. Um, I mean, it's it's basically something that I think anyone who watches the show has an affinity for, like, immediately. Uh, but for very different reasons. So I think we could just kind of go around roundtable style and talk about why the first time you see the lodge, like you, you just, you're instantly sold on the show. Yeah, that's a, um, that's a good point. You're like instantly in love with it the first time you see it. And I think for me, it's like everything else in Twin Peaks, the mystery of it. And the thing about the lodge is that it's so terrifying without being terrifying. Like, um, one thing that I remember, I don't know how to say his last name, Kyle, the guy who plays Cooper, saying Mm -hmm. is that... Kyle McLaughlin. Yeah, McLaughlin. We almost never see Cooper rattled. And David Lynch also said once that um, if you want to go on an adventure like this, Cooper's the one you would want with you. And I think the fact that they have Cooper there really drills in how absurd and uncanny the Lodge is because we feel safe when we're there with Cooper, but if he's not there, it's disconcerting. And even when he is there, it's disconcerting at times. So it's like the lodge itself and all the spirits and like the creepy, uncanny backward talk that they do is very much like the rest of what he does, um, like a dream. And it's a dream that you feel like you're never going to wake up from. And knowing that this place is real, and even when you're like watching Twin Peaks and you're seeing the melodrama and stuff, the lodge is in the back of your head. And it's very much like it underwrites everything that's in Twin Peaks. So it's this place of mystery and this place almost where it feels like the show originates from, which I don't think is the case, but it feels like everything flows from the lodge. Well, okay. Yeah, uh, coming off of that, I think actually you can say that, but not... It's not that everything flows solely from the Black Lodge, because there is also the White Lodge, and which we don't see as much of. Uh, in fact, we never see it in either the original series or Fire Walk With Me. It is not seen until uh, the return. That the, the White Lodge is where uh, the giant or the fireman lives, and where Laura's consciousness is... Uh, sent from originally Mm -hmm. and so what I like about Fire Walk With Me and also The Return and their depictions of the lodges is that for one you get a much richer thing because um, you're seeing both the red room but also the area of the lodge that the woodsmen live in which is more like this strange old house or apartment thing beneath, uh, above a convenience store, as Mike 
famously told us uh, in the second or third episode um, originally. And then um, we see so many other aspects of it. And it's like you can view it as aspects of God, as aspects of consciousness. Um, when you're seeing things like what Philip Jeffries eventually becomes, uh, for example, and when you're completely out in the outer dimensions and you're dealing with creatures like, uh, like Jowdy and Bob, which is her spawn. And so that's just so, such a fantastical, overwhelming vibe of just surreal beauty and horror alternating. And the Black Lodge itself is interesting because the way I felt about it was that it's not hell because not all of the people who reside in it are either evil or subject to endless torture. Like, because Philip Gerard Mike lives there and he is basically in there as a double agent for Cooper. Although I suppose you can read that depending on how you read what he does in the return. You can also read, read that as just the devil trying to control its demons, i.e. trying to bring Bob back under control, which is a fool's errand, of course, um, especially when he becomes fused with Cooper because you have all of the intelligence and competence of Cooper as his self fueled with this ancient and un absolutely insatiable un indomitable evil and so he becomes even more of a destructive force so I guess it depends on how you view Mike slash Philip Gerard in that capacity. But what it is, what it is for certain, the Black Lodge, mm-hmm. is it is a place of madness and of instability. And that's right. why evil can take purchase in it so easily. So that's what fascinates it. That's what fascinates me specifically about it. Right. I'm I am most interested in the aesthetics of it. I think that is what is the most immediate thing for me actually is most I think depictions of a liminal space in cinema or in television or any any modern medium I would say are are typically un- underwhelming I feel and I don't know if it's because so much of these depictions typically revolve around like non, I mean, one good thing about Twin Peaks is like a, the effects are practical and in camera. Um, and the set design is, is part of this terror that we're all like kind of like syncing up on and we're all kind of like peering into and that all, has affected us in, in, in some way enchanted us at the same time is, is it's visuals. I feel is at least 75% of the reason that, that, that concept of a liminal space where these beings live is, is 25% of it for me, but the, the visuals is just incredible. And it's this weird fusion of art deco, um, kind of like on acid is the best way I could put it, but it's also hyper minimalist 
there's not a lot there. Its iconography is so easily replicated in various like nods and things like that because it's really not that special. It's just the perfect combination of enough mundane things to seem otherworldly and unnerving at the same time. And I think that's what I, I love about it aesthetically and why I was instantly just like in love with that show. I also think too, something, a connection I didn't make until very recently when I got Eraserhead on uh, Blu-ray and rewatched it for the first time in probably around six or seven years actually, is I did not make all the connections visually with the Lodge and a lot of Eraserhead's uh, set design. The elevators specifically have the same exact flooring as the lodge. Uh, Henry finally goes in eraser head and where uh, where his head is popped off by the chicken. Yep. So there's like this a uh, general like continued continued aesthetic that um, Lynch has worked with, um, and so there's a starting place for the lodge. It even it even evolves in the way that Lynch was thinking of it. And designing it and, and seeing that sort of carefully curated into this perfect, perfectly mundane, but perfectly unnerving hellscape, uh, is, is really incredible to me. So, yeah, I agree. All right. Um, anyone else have anything else to say about the lodge? Any commentaries, any ideas, anything about maybe your favorite section? The, what do you like most about it? Hallways, the entrance? The waiting My room. My favorite section is probably the Jeffrey's machine. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that is a good Jeff. choice. That is a good choice. That was a, that was that was definitely a deep cut. That was which we don't get, which we don't see until Twin Peaks to return. Um, second favorite is the red waiting room. Obviously, it has yeah. to be. Yeah. Yeah, um, particularly idea. the way it's depicted in the final episode of the original run of the series when Lynch is doing all these strobe effects and alternating with the red filter, the, the red light filters and having Jimmy Scott just come in to sing by the sycamore trees out of nowhere and then disappear. Yeah, it's just an incredibly beautiful moment yeah yeah i think a more difficult question i think probably the last thing we'll kind of talk about in terms of the lodge is and this might be really difficult to pin down actually now that i think about it, but i think it's worth uh, trying as an exercise is the first time you guys saw the red room or the black lodge in twin peaks what did you think i think my immediate thought was just what the fuck I think I think that's what it was. <laughs> uh, I was like, "What the fuck is going on here?" Um, and uh, one of uh, my friends had spoiled like the very very end for me. Like I didn't have any context for it, but can I talk about the end here? Yeah, okay. Yeah, I'd okay. say go for it. Go for so, it. So somebody posted a meme about shadow cooper which is mr c and that was in my head every time i saw the lodge so um that's and i i i guess there was just this wonder about it that i had like what what's really going on here what what's the motivations for these people and at first it seems like their motivations are to help cooper solve the murder but as you 
see more scenes with them, you realize that's not quite the case. No, not entirely. They mostly just want to get Bob under control, like yeah. so that they can do they can do some of their haunty things, but maybe without so much noise and without so many murders. Like they still need to, because they still need to collect Garmonbosia, but you can't hoard it. Yeah, seems like Bob is trying to keep all all the Garmonbosia for himself, and the arm doesn't like that. Bob no, is the first doesn't. venture capitalist for Garmonbosia. <laughs> <laughs> He's the Jeff Bezos of uh, Garmonbosia. Oh, oh God. <laughs> yeah, I mean, sounds about right, for Bob. Yeah. <laughs> Bob and Bezos might be ha- hanging out together. We don't They're know probably good at this friends. point. It's 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 entirely plausible. That's the thing that makes Bob a good villain. You could see it. You could see it. Um, I'd say for the first time I saw the the lodge, I was just uh, I guess immediately kind of disarmed by it. I really didn't know what to think actually. And I think maybe my more, like, genuine reaction was, this must be just a dream or a vision. I didn't think it was, like, a real space or anything that occupied anything resembling. uh, And maybe it still is a corporeal dream, if that makes sense. Um, But at the same time, I, I, and that's, I didn't, I just thought it was a dream. And until it was revisited later, I was like, oh, wow, this is, no, this is a real, this is a real thing. But it is that law and wonder. I think Adam put it really that's just the simplest way of putting it is, is pure wonder, which is interesting to have conjoined along with un, uh, sort yeah. of terror and a bit of unnervingness too. Like it's almost like, um, that hoax where, um, they were in Serbia, I think, and they said they dug deep enough to hear hell. And like, if it was real, that would be the red room <laughs> because like there's this terror and wonder about it. And it's like, there's this place that's definite and real somewhere, and it has this mystique about it that is bewildering and horrifying, but you just want to know more. Yeah, it's, it's really, it's really unique. It's, it's really powerful. And yeah, if you guys haven't watched Twin Peaks or you're wondering what are we talking about with the Black Lodge or the Red Room, just uh, just search a, an image of it. Maybe we'll post one for the episode uh, art. But you should you should really check it out because you've probably seen it emulated or imitated before and didn't realize that it was actually referencing it. And fucking Family Guy. It's been in The Simpsons it, for sure. It might have um, been on like Robot Chicken. Even I know uh, when Eric Andre was planning his show, he said he wanted his set to look like The Red Room. So, and it kind of does actually. It's ve- actually the same. There's a really great uh, YouTube channel uh, called Nightmare Masterclass, and he did a video called "Is Eric Andre in Hell?" And that kind of tied together the concepts of his show, and it it was a pretty convincing argument, I have to say, uh, pretty convincing. And yes, that the 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 interview set definitely has a, a very hellish feel to it on that show so um for gamers out there all my gamers check you out uh the velvet room from persona series uh is also definitely influenced by the red room slash black lodge so 
Um, I know now what I must do. I know since I've said that, I I deserve only death. That's my only way out. So uh, this is the last episode you'll be hearing me on. <laughs> well, it's a good thing I got a lot. We got a bunch of guests lined up for a while, I guess. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, just briefly talking about my first impression on Black Lodge was yeah. I saw it in just a YouTube video that um, a girl I was dating at the time like was trying to get me and like I was already into David Lynch. She's trying to get me into Twin Peaks specifically. I was just like, yeah, I've just never been able to get it because like you can't get it other than on like tape and which was true at the time. And or oddly enough you could buy DVDs of season two, but not season one. <laughs> wow. Makes sense. Yeah, I don't know why this was until they didn't correct this until 2007 when they released the gold box edition set. Anyway, so I first saw a YouTube clip of Cooper's Dream, and I was like, okay, I knew sort of what the show was about. Like, actually, I'd seen the pilot because uh, Brattle Theater here in Boston had sh- had screened it um, at an event, and like. I forget what it was in conjunction with. And so then I saw, so I was like, okay, this is pretty interesting. I can see, like, I can see why people love it, but like, I can't watch it. So what do I do? And, um, so my girlfriend showed me the Cooper's dream scene. And I was like, even more like, okay, this is awesome. But like, why is he old? What what the fuck? Why is he old? Why are why is why are they talking backwards? What is this uh, dwarf doing? Um, questions, just questions. Yeah, it was it was just questions and fast utter fascination, not really fear. I wasn't like it's not a scary scene, Cooper's dream, uh, not in that context, at least. It only becomes scary when it's at times when it's revisited, and then in much other other scenes of the Black Lodge that are utterly terrifying. But those come much later. So yeah, that was my first impression. It was just like, what the fuck? But also just wonder. Yeah, yeah. All right. Um, I think that's a perfect time to uh, kind of discuss your your new novel, Adam, uh, The Sing of Damnation. Uh, you did an interview recently at Heavy Blog is Heavy. I do recommend everybody uh, go ahead and check that out uh, who's listening uh, and does want greater insight, I think, into your process. Also, too, in the same interview, um, I know you talk, uh, they talk about with uh, Brian Manning. Of, uh, I always say this wrong. Correct me if I'm wrong, Adam. Bose de Nage. I always say it wrong, too. So <laughs> I always say, uh, cool. Boss de Nage. That's how I say it. Nog. I, I guess a nog would make more sense than Nage. Uh, N-A-G-E. Uh, if it's N-A-G-E and it's a French word, it's probably Nage. Yeah, I mean, that's probably right. That's what I assumed, but I could be wrong. So I've heard, um, I've heard <laughs> Any- Jonathan say it before, but like, um, he said it in an interview once, and I feel like he said Bas de Nog, but... He probably didn't, and I'm probably just misremembering because my memory sucks. Okay. I mean, my, mine is, like, yeah, I, I forget things like that all the time. Like, 
like the amount of little bits of pop culture trivia and like sports knowledge and like historical knowledge that bounce around my brain constantly like i can like call up so many of them at like a moment's notice and then like usually when i get put on the spot i instantly lose what i'm whatever i'm trying to get so no worries same with me it's proof that the uh the real lodge was in our heads (laughs) all along yeah, uh, so I'm going to start out with asking some, uh, like I said, I think some of the questions, uh, I wrote these shortly after I'd fin- finished, uh, to sing of damnation. Um, so some of them will involve stuff that's in the book, uh, but some of them things I, I think you, you guys will, uh, if you do read it, will, will prove, uh, very interesting. Um, so the first question that I have actually, um, is Adam, how did you develop uh, AR or Thoroth's uh, sigil? Um, for those two, I... So, <laughs> it's a bit of a story. I wanted to create a sigil for a fake demon, Thoroth. And I actually went to the occult subreddit and asked... I don't believe in, like, demons or the occult, but I was still making sure, and I was like, hey, can I, like, die if I do this? (laughs) Just, like, to make sure nothing would happen. (laughs) And, um... (laughs) Yes, and some... (laughs) Yeah. And, um, somebody commented something that was like, somebody can, like, create a a demon based off of this and haunt you forever if they're trolling you, and I was like... I don't know what this means, but um, someone else said that I could use statements that were completely benign. So I could take something like, I want to be happy, and turn that into a sigil. And just not, you know, put that in the book and say it's the sigil of Thera'uth or Ayer. And that's exactly what I did. I um, actually used like a sigil generator for it and um, had... Um, the Suzanne who did the cover of the book draw the sigils and um, one of them is like um, I hope this book sells well it's one of the sigils and I don't remember what the other one was but they're like completely benign statements that's awesome I'm so glad I, I, I asked that question because that's a fantastic story <laughs> Uh, so, all right. So after this, I'm going to go on that subreddit. Uh, I'm going to go on that Reddit and, uh, oh, it's just, deleted uh, now. You can't start now. <laughs> oh, well, damn it. Damn it. Okay. Son of a bitch. Okay. Uh, so the second question is, uh, another item in the narrative, uh, the crown of Thidmos, uh, is a really unique machine. And, uh, I love things like this. Uh, the closest thing I could think of was like the orbs and phantasm things that defy possibility and the technological level that's present, but feel somehow natural in that world. Uh, So, yes, Lament Configuration, Crown of Thidmos, it's it's a badass concept. And I think, um, actually asked you in a DM, Adam, when I was uh, reading the Mysophorism trilogy, I had misremembered if there was an actual device that uh, that the Lazarus Society was using. And it was actually just, you know, basically just a belt. Oh, that's the uh, Myrian um, Society, yeah. Myrian Society, excuse me, yeah. Um, and that was um, that was something I, th- I don't know why that popped in my head, but it felt like almost self-fulfilling reading this. I'm like, oh, here, this is exactly yeah. what I was talking about. Like, So um, how did that come about? Like, Where did the inspiration for the Crown of Thidmos come from? And like, what 
how did you think of that? Because it is really a quite a horrific oh, yeah. instrument to so, consider its effects. It's like three days in the book. It was uh, the something skull? like that. It's awful. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think you know it's obviously inspired by the crown of thorns that Jesus wears. So I was definitely pulling from that. But it's also this thing where Tisad is in the Misophorism mythos and. Thitmos is the name of the Lazarus Society's god that was eaten by the last man. And the creation stories in Tisad with, um, I'm re- misremembering the god's name. Um, Ekatol, that's what it is, god. Um, the creation story right. with Ekatol and the last man is actually really similar too. So there is this link between um Ecatolian or Ecatolist religion and the Lazarus Society. And there's this link between the last man and Ecatol. And you know, Jordan goes to Haven Root and everything, and all of this is connected in sort of a similar way to how like in Twin Peaks there's the Red Room and everything's connected to the Red Room, but you're not exactly sure what the Red Room is in itself. So there's right. like this there's this story that is written between all of these events. And the crown of Thitmos is sort of one of those things that exist in two stories at once. It's not in the Misophorism trilogy, but you know the name Thitmos is. So yeah, it's almost yeah. like they're crossing over in a way. So it was... Oh, That's go a- ahead. Yeah, it's just a great reference, and I, I love that. It's kind of the metaphor that I took away from it is, like, if you use uh, kind of uh, most people, I think, consider, like, the soul to be in the chest, the heart, like, yeah. that region. But at the same way, it's like if it eats away at the flesh upon your skull, and it, it's also, you, like, you used your brain or you relied on logic instead of yeah. your heart. And it's this brilliant kind of punishment to say, we'll strip away everything but the barrier that prevents, like, your brain from falling out into the world. <laughs> it's a, it's a, that's the, that's what I felt when I was reading it. I just thought it was, is, uh, it was elegant, um, in that sense. It was just really fascinating to me. I don't know why that stood out. I, as soon as I was reading it, I'm like, I made a note on my phone. I was like, yep, that's something Thank I wanted you. to talk I'm, about. So. I'm glad it resonated with you. Um, yeah, that was definitely, yeah. I was trying to come up with a lot of different tortures for air. And that was one of them. I was like, wow, this is awful. I'm using it. So, yeah. Yeah, it, it worked really <laughs> well. You. It worked really well. Okay, uh, so furthering, furthering, getting deeper dives into the uh, the mythos here, the in-universe book of On Ancient Rites and Forgotten Gods uh, was reminiscent to me of like Ars Gosha yeah. or The Lesser Key of Solomon. Uh, were there any other like bestiaries that influenced you or even like the design of Thoroth? Uh, was there anything you was kind of like drawing influence from in that time to create that book and the structures of the demons and gods and angels? Yeah. Um, so for, um, on ancient rites and forgotten gods, that was inspired by this book I have called an angel dictionary, including the fallen angels. And it lists every angel name the author can find, including fallen angels. And it's literally like a dictionary. It reads as if these are words and it tells you their history. And like, they have 
angels like Archangel Michael in there. They have angels that no one's ever heard of in there, too, like Matt Moniel. I think it's how you say his name. And he cites his sources and where he got all of them from. And also, just like, um, I remember listening to Girl with Basket of Fruit by Shushu, and the first track is inspired by this demon, Vedas. And I looked him up, and I found, like, this dictionary-like site just talking about um, their experiences with him and, like, what his face looks like and all of this shit. And I pulled from both of those things and kind of combined them to make it this almost cursed book that really shouldn't exist. It's just bad news. Yeah, that's excellent. What an interesting book, too, to kind of, like, in the real world that I come yeah. out of nowhere. And just, yeah, that's awesome. Um, So moving on to some more prose-oriented questions. So stylistically, uh, you employ the use of an exclamation mark, actually, in both books, quite vigorously. Um, and I felt that this was sort of a, an obvious literary effect, but also to evoke 19th century writings and, and earlier. Uh, so am I correct in that assessment? Yeah, you're um, absolutely and if so, uh, correct. why did you, why did you employ that, uh, prose style? Um, I, uh, part of it is I just like how that reads. And I grew up, not necessarily grew up, I guess, but like when I was a teenager and, um, from just recently too, I have been really into, like 18th century books, 19th century books. And I think um, a big influence on that prose was Albert Camus, because I had just finished The Stranger when I was writing Teesside. But also, just like, I, Camus has always been one of my favorite authors. And I love, like, the almost dramatic style of some of their narration. And, like, same with right. like Milton too, because Paradise Lost by Milton is definitely dramatic in the way Satan talks and all of that. And having this like, you know, almost the dialogue is reminiscent of a Shakespeare play or a Milton monologue or something uh, at, for all characters, but especially for the demons and angels and stuff. I definitely like yeah. working with that diction and I'm writing something now that's not fully in that diction and it's a little odd to step away from it because I do like it so much. Yeah, uh, you created a, I mean, you definitely, uh, I think, presented something with the demons, uh, particularly that was evocative of that vernacular. Yeah. Uh, so it immediately stood out to me. Um, mostly because I, I read a lot of historical, uh, texts and, and literature as well. Um, but also just given the nature of the context of the works and what's going on, it, it just, it just made sense. Um, so it's, it's done very well for the demons, Thank especially. You. Uh, I, I really enjoyed, uh, the vernacular that they use and, and their language. Um, it also provides, I think what's interesting is probably to modern readers, I think of it as that it provides sort of an alien feeling to them that I can kind of understand what they're saying, but if you don't really think about it, it's almost as if they're not really speaking the yeah. same language. They're, they're sort of all over the place. It's, it's fascinating to think about, uh, that. Um, so Jordan as a protagonist is actually, and this is kind of piggybacking off of it a little bit about in terms of narrative structure is, um, Jordan as a protagonist, he's extremely, uh, emotionally vulnerable. Yeah. There's lots of self doubt. There's some self harm, there's plenty of emotional challenges for him to overcome, and he reacts to them in, in pretty extreme ways. 
Um, it's different to have such an emotionally reactive protagonist because oftentimes uh, since modernity or at least modernism, like emotionally vulnerable protagonists are, are more du jour, but reacting to that seems to be something that is often not favored yeah. as much, uh, unless it's in something that can be displayed uh, outwardly like anger or violence or things like that. Um, so what inspired you to create a protagonist that seems so different uh, compared to most protagonists we encounter nowadays? Um, I think a big part of it is just that, you know, it's the follow-up to the Misophorism trilogy. And I'm thinking about Jordan as a character, and I really don't want... I didn't want to write Jordan as, like, this guy who's like super fucking tough and can handle anything and he just takes whatever is thrown at him jordan is very much frustrated incredibly frustrated by the situation he's in and he's like trapped between his father's suicide trapped between god he's trapped between a demon who apparently works for god he didn't know that at first and all of these things are sort of pushing him into this one direction and he emotionally can't take it because of you know it's god taking an interest in you and it's almost like you know he's at his breaking point throughout the entire book because he he was an atheist before and now he's got all of this shit going on around him he's being haunted by a demon who wants to do him harm (laughs) like he says all the time that um the demon has like a harmful radiance to him and um it just seems like god doesn't care too god is not benevolent and he has to work for him anyway at least that's what it feels like when he's like being hounded by this demon and he's going on this quest and even the priest for Ekatol are like cold and distant, where he's like the only emotionally vulnerable character in the story. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's a great kind of um avenue for maybe the audience to join in and, and allow their humanist like the more humane side of them to kind of approach that with like being like, Yeah, I guess I probably wouldn't be all that <laughs> if if yeah. I was in his situation. Um, some interesting formats exist in both Mysophorism trilogy, um, within like the paragraphs and, and the way that certain paragraphs are paced like upon a page where there's lots of negative space in between. Yeah. Um, and I was wondering, like, was that intentional to create sort of a, a, an isolation or loneliness through the display of the prose or even maximize impact of certain passages? Yeah. It, it was to maximize impact. For sure, because like, um, for example, an example of, I'll give two. So like, um, I'm going to start spoiling the book. So if anyone hasn't read it, <laughs> this skip is ahead a bit. <laughs> yeah, but um, for example, um, when he's talking to Thra'uth, and Thra'uth tells him about his dad sicking Thra'uth on him, um, there's this negative space to like. When he starts having the vision, there's this big gap to sort of show you, the reader, how much Jordan feels removed from his home. Like he's somewhere completely different. And then there's more negative space when he's sent back. And also, for maximizing impact, there's this, there's this part where, um, 
Jordan is strangling Seneca's to death and he cries out help and no one comes to help. And there's a single line that says Haven Roots residents were no strangers to death. And I felt like, you know, formatting the paragraphs like that would make the impact of that line a lot stronger than if it was just at like the end of a paragraph. Yeah, it it worked really well. At first I was I was I was grappling with it and being like, "Oh, is this just like a weird editing format?" Then I began to kind of reread certain passages and it it began to take shape, but I, you can never be entirely certain. Uh so I was why not ask about it? Uh so uh, uh, why first person instead of third person narration for Jordan's segments of To Sing of Damnation? Um I guess to me, I I'm trying to articulate it. There, There is a reason, but it's hard to really... Um, I feel like seeing it through Jordan's eyes and seeing his, hearing his emotions and hearing his diction and just having to deal with him throughout the entire story, it would be a little more fulfilling than having a distant third-person narrator to it. And as far as, you know, like when Tentacio Arius starts, you have this, the very same distant third person. And the reason for that juxtaposition is the second part is supposed to sort of resemble the Bible. And the first part is supposed to be more personable. Whereas like you're right. with Jordan and you're following him along and then you switch into um, Tentacio Arius and it's this cold description of suffering and misery and it's almost like the narrator of that has no sympathy for them even when they're going through hell and doing all of that and that is sort of also you know ecotol having no sympathy for air he just doesn't give a shit and when he gets to hell he's like yeah you're suffering and it's fun for me yeah so it's it's definitely like this i wanted um jordan to be more personable i wanted people to get to know him more and for the second part i wanted it to be very um impersonable and viewing suffering as sort of like just an event nothing super emotionally charged yeah now that actually is a great segue to the next question actually which is regarding part two um because part two was originally uh your least favorite um, and I know yeah. we were, we chit chatted about this a little bit. Um, and I saw, I think I saw it on your Instagram stories as well. I'm not a hundred percent sure I might've, um, I, that's my favorite part of the book actually. So I was going to ask, how did you kind of come around to part two and be getting to enjoy it again? That's a good question. I am. Um, I think when I originally wrote it, I was way more attached to Jordan and, so I enjoyed his narration style more. And then when I got to part two, I was, I finished it and thought it was just okay. Um, and then I sent it to my best friend and proofreader Gavin and he loved all of it. So, um, I started to sort of view it. My favorite part as well. Well, thank you. Part. Glad you enjoyed it. I, I guess like I started to view it in a different light. Because I, I've heard other people say that they like it a lot. And personally, like, my favorite part is the third part. But um, just, like, going back and l looking at 
the events in the story and trying not to like <laughs> be too critical on myself and hammer myself away at the pros and everything. Right. And I think I was just being way too critical on it at first and thinking that it was like garbage. But um, I sort of came around on it and realized that it wasn't. I just, I guess, had more of an affinity for Jordan as a character than Ayer. Yeah. And uh, hey, young young writers uh, listening, or anyone who is writing listening, this is the value of showing your work to uh, trusted friends and colleagues. Uh, so, yeah. you know, never know. Show it, show it, show it around. Let people read it and you might feel differently about it. Um, so in, in part two, uh, I noticed that there was blood rain. Is this perhaps yeah. a reference to blood hail? <laughs> no, I didn't even make that connection, but <laughs> I was just going to start singing arrowheads over and over and over again there. So, okay, that's good. Jesus. Uh, I'm sorry. I can't help myself. Oh, by the way, take a shot. Everybody that was having a first have a nice life reference. We made it an hour <laughs> in without a have a nice life reference, which is incredible for this pod. So, um, all right. So Thoros, uh, snapping of its, of its fingers and hands was an interesting motif, snapping, clapping. What was that inspired by numerology? Like as a presence, like come, like deviating from like the occult lineage of like numerology, or was that just uh, something you had kind of developed as an interesting trait, uh, for the demon? Yeah, it, it was much more of the latter, just something I developed as a trait. I just felt, I thought like this idea of him snapping um, around the house. Well, it originally started as just like, um, like a just walking thing. around, making coffee, snapping. Yeah, like <laughs> the demon is just um, snapping around the house. And at first I was like, that's just one of the events that happens in the haunting. But then I thought, you know, if he's trying to get Jordan's attention by doing that when he's actually speaking to him he's probably going to be snapping and okay. um i think it really came through in the vision he has in the desert where he's snapping between every like big reveal that he gives and it's sort of ominous so like um you know when he gets to eight snaps something is going to happen and so i feel like it ramps up the tension in that scene when yeah. you see, like, he snapped two of his hands. Yeah. It's due to, like, I think how malleable numerology can become, too. If I, if you were somebody like me, who you shouldn't be someone like me, but if you were, <laughs> you'd be like, ooh, what does the number eight mean within numerology? I wonder if I go back and research this. Did this... Yeah, don't do oh, that, yeah. kids. Don't. Uh, anyways, uh, last question, uh, and this is more of a free-form one, but I think it's an interesting question. Do you feel, or do you think you could say that we're all kind of possessed uh, by some demon or another, even if that demons of our own creation or someone else's, if it's trauma's creation, if it's, you know, given shape and form by the way our life, uh, goes awry. Uh, do you think that that's fair to say that in some way, even if it's not truly mystical or spiritual, that, uh, we are possessed effectively? Yes. And I think that demon is the demon of death. I think that every single person in their life has to rectify being alive at some point. And there's, I'm reading this book now called, um, the owner of all infernal names. And it's about this idea that God is evil and he exists and he created humankind. And to me, 
he that idea that God exists and is evil and has created all of this and has created death and everything is very powerful, not because I believe in God, I don't, it's, but it's like this idea that life is not positive experience. And he cites a lot of people who use the cosmological argument, and they all say, well, God exists and he's good because life is good, where when when you really think about it, we're constantly struggling to survive, to live. We have to get food on the table. We have to keep a job so we can keep shelter and not end up on the street. We have to protect ourselves. We're constantly working. We spend a great mm-hmm. deal of our lives working so we can have money so we don't die. But why don't we want to die if we're doing all of that? And I think at some point, everybody has to sit down and think, do I honestly want to be alive? If I'm just going to die, nothing's going to happen after. And people do have their own ways of dealing with that, like religion, um, or the law of attraction, which I hate, or... um, (laughs) just like existentialism or absurdism, which is my go-to. But I think, you know, acknowledging that death in the end has power over all of us is in a way a demon that haunts us because I don't think you can truly, truly live and see life and the good parts of life until you realize that it's all going to go away one day. Right. That's a that's an amazing answer. Uh, I'm glad I asked that question. I wasn't sure uh, how that would go, but Adam, that was a fantastic <laughs> answer. Okay, this Thank is you. actually the, the real last question. I was just kidding. There's actually oh. a secret last question, and I don't know if you answered this on your Instagram stories or not. What song did you listen to the most while writing to Sing of Damnation? Um, I think it was Girl with Basket of Fruit by Shushu. Or it was that or Boy Soprano by Shushu, because both of those songs I kind of imagined as the Ra'u's theme. So, like, in Boy Soprano, there's this, like, hostile, claustrophobic um, aura to the song. And on Girl with Basket of Fruit, it's like this absolutely manic, terrifying, you're going to die aura. And I think both of those are like Thoreau's theme in my head. So I think it's probably either of those. And at the end of the book, I um, listened to Famous Last Words by My Chemical Romance. That's what inspired it. (laughs) Because, you know... He throws away the book and he's like, I'm going to keep living. And the chorus of that song is, I'm not afraid to keep on living. And originally before that, the ending was just he was going to kill himself. But I was like, that's lame. And so I went with the ending of him getting rid of the book and scorning Ekatol and all of that. Because I felt like it was more fitting also because I love my chemical romance. That Wow. Who would have guessed that that ending would have been? <laughs> I'm actually surprised. I'm I was just kind of joking with that question is on the spot, but I'm, I'm still glad I asked it as well. <laughs> okay. So Adam, thank you for your presence. Thank you for your interview and incredibly insightful commentary. It's deeply, deeply appreciated. Uh, do you have anything else you want to promote or anything else you'd like to talk about uh, before you head out? Um, I don't think I have anything to promote. I can talk about what I'm working on right now a little bit. Let's I- hear it. Let's hear it. I'm working on this uh, book of aphorisms, which is largely about suicide, suffering, and death. 
And it's one of those projects that you can't work on unless you're so really entirely depressed. new territory for you. <laughs> well, I mean, to be honest, it is kind of new territory because it it is it does deal with familiar themes, but it goes sometimes even further than the Misophorism trilogy. So it is like very bleak, and it's also I, it's not philosophy, but it's nonfiction. So. I guess you could consider it philosophy, but I'm not smart enough to be a philosopher. And I'm working on the final book in the Misophorism Mythos, which um, does involve Haven Root in some capacity. Awesome. Yeah. I definitely like the name of that uh, that place, and I'd love to see it revisited, so I'm, I'm excited for that. Um, you guys check out, uh, obviously, check out Adam's work. You can buy uh, physical copies from uh, nowflensing.com. Uh, you can buy the Mysophorism trilogy as well as the Singer Damnation in paperback. They are absolutely worth your time. Uh, we highly, highly recommend them. Uh, we have reviews up on Goodreads as well. Uh, if you'd like to check those out for some more, uh, insight into the works, uh, and we can't recommend them enough to you guys. So, uh, keep your ear to the earth, uh, for more mentions of Adam's future works. And, uh, Adam, thank you for being with us. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much, Adam. All right. Have a good one. You too. Alright, peace. Peace. See you guys. I 
Mademoiselle 